You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Have you heard of John Paul Getty III? He was the grandson of famous oil tycoon John Getty. In 1966, John Getty, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, was the wealthiest man on planet Earth. He was worth over a billion dollars. And so you'd think his grandson, John Paul Getty III, would be fairly well off, right? He'd have a pretty comfortable life. But that's not how the story went. In 1973, John Paul Getty III was kidnapped and held for ransom. $17 million was the number demanded. They were trying to extort the Getty family. And his granddad, John Getty, was notoriously frugal. Just to give you some examples of what this looked like in his life. uh, He actually had a payphone installed at his mansion where he lived so that when neighbors came over and needed to make a call, they'd have to bring their own quarters. They'd have to cover the cost themselves. Whenever his clothing would wear out and fray on the edges, he'd just cut off the edges and keep wearing it because he didn't want to buy more. In his life, every time he traveled to a hotel, he negotiated the price down oftentimes at the expense of the places he was staying. John Getty was frugal. And so when it came time to pay this ransom, he said, that's too steep a price. It's too expensive. And naturally, the kidnappers weren't very happy about that conclusion, and so they decided to up their game. They cut off the ear of John Paul Getty III, took a lock of his hair, and mailed it to his grandfather. And they said, look, we'll reduce our number to $3 million, but if you don't pay that, we're going to do much worse to your grandson. John Getty said, number's still a little too high for me. He said, you know what? I'll go as high as $2.2 million. That's as far as I'll go, which is kind of random, right? Why 2.2? Well, that was the maximum amount he could deduct on his taxes at the end of the year. He was thinking about his benefit. And then he said, to make up that other $3 million, I'll lend $800,000 at 4% interest to my own son, who will then have to pay me back. And eventually, the kidnappers did release John Paul III. The kidnappers got arrested, but the damage had already been done. John Paul Getty III lived a tortured life. He was in and out of being addicted to drugs that led eventually to a seizure that paralyzed him until his death at age 54. The story of the Getty family is a pertinent reminder to every single one of us. You can get everything you want in the world and still be missing true life. You can get all of the stuff, all of the possessions, all of the money you want, and it can rule you. It can dictate everything you do. As John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived, he was asked in an interview, how much money is enough? He said, just a little bit more. In this, our latest installment in our series we're calling Enduring Questions, we're going to look at a parable that Jesus tells us about this deeply ingrained part of our humanity called greed. It's something that many of us know exists, but we often don't want to acknowledge. Jesus calls it out and says, well, there's a way through it, and I want to lead all of you through it. And there's three things he does in this passage that we're going to explore together. First, he points out a problem. Second, he proposes a parable. And third, he proclaims a paragon. Fancy English word, yeah. I'm an English major. You'll learn what paragon is today. It's a good vocab word to take away with you. He points out a problem. He 
uh, proposes a parable and he proclaims a paragon. If you have a Bible, turn in it with me to Luke. This is the third book in our New Testament, if you're flipping there. Uh, if you have an app, that works as well. We're going to have the text up on the screen as I read here. Luke chapter 12 is where we're going to be, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, the crowd, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At this point in the narrative of Luke, the gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus has been doing his thing for a little while. He's been healing people. He's been teaching them about the kingdom of heaven. And he's been saying that he's the one that is the fulfillment of God's redemptive and restorative plan for the whole earth. He's been proclaiming those words. And so naturally, people are coming to him with problems often, to be healed, to get teaching in particular parts of their lives, crowds are flooding in upon Jesus. And that's what's happening here when we arrive at this passage. The crowds are following him around. And in the midst of the hubbub of those people, a voice rings out. Either it's louder than the rest or Jesus hears it a little more clearly. The voice says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Right at the start, we're learning uh, a subtle assumption underneath this man's statement. The assumption is that there's division between him and his brother. They can't seem to find harmony over the possessions of their recently deceased father, right? He's coming to Jesus with a problem and hoping Jesus would solve that problem for him. And the problem is that he doesn't have enough stuff. The stuff that he believes he's entitled to, he needs more of it, and his brother's not giving it to him. And that sort of request, by the way, both today and in the past, not a crazy one, there was actually a system of laws and a structure set up in the temple at the time to uh, arbitrate these sorts of cases, to make sure that everyone walked away fairly, which is why Jesus responds the way he does. He says, who made me a judge or an arbitrator? He's like, bro, there's, there's systems in place. Like, you know this. You can go and get this resolved elsewhere. The fact that this man comes to Jesus, Jesus actually well, is understanding there's a deeper problem underneath the man's problem. See, the man's perspective is that his problem isn't is having not enough stuff. He doesn't have enough possessions. Right? And Jesus says, your problem is actually believing that enough stuff can give you satisfaction. He goes underneath the man's assumption. And that's why he says, take care. Be on guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in abundance of possessions. The man's statement of Jesus shows the deeper problem. And Jesus tells the whole crowd that true life, the things we're really chasing after, satisfaction, peace, love, harmony, they don't come 
with an abundance of possessions. And in fact, oftentimes, the more you get, the more you realize those things don't satisfy you, as John Paul Getty and John D. Rockefeller illustrate for us. Sometimes the best thing to happen is to get those things and realize they don't satisfy me. Because when we get them, our heart is exposed. And if we don't get them, it's always a carrot in front of us, right? Something that is always there and our reach just exceeds our grasp. And here's what's amazing about what Jesus is saying here. Everyone agrees with him. There's literally never been a culture in human history, never been a religious teacher that says greed is a good thing. Everyone knows that greed is bad. We all agree on this statement. Listen to this quote from Buddha. There's no fire like passion, no shark like hatred, no snare like folly, no torrent like greed. Socrates said he who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. Seneca, another famous Greek philosopher, a Stoic, said, it is not the man who has too little, but the man who craves more that is poor. Gandhi said, earth provides enough to satisfy every man's needs, but not every man's greed. So we all have a problem called greed, and we all know it's there. We all agree. We high five on it. Yes, great. That means we fixed it, right? We've acknowledged the problem, and now we can rid ourselves of this. That's not how it works, right? We can know the right thing to do and still fail to do that thing. That happens all the time in our lives, and we experience greed at an incredible level in our culture today. Greed has not gone away. In fact, it's just as prevalent now as it's always been. We live in a Western world that tells us that the obtaining of more stuff will give us real lasting satisfaction. America runs on that notion. Truly, America runs on Duncan. But that proves the point, right? If you just get Duncan, then you can run. If you just get more donuts and more coffee, then, then you'll be satisfied. We can help you do the life that you're made for. If you get more stuff, then you can have true life. We've been conditioned to think this way. Question for you guys in the room, and some of you may already know the answer to this. So if you don't, or if you uh, heard this from me earlier this week, because I shared it with a few of you, don't ruin the answer for everybody else. I want to see what people have to say. How many advertisements do you think the average American is exposed to on a daily basis? Just throw out some numbers. 200 a day. 1,000, okay? Both of those are way too low. Between four and 10,000 advertisements a day is what the average American is exposed to. That's average. Think about all of the advertisements in your life, on your phone, on your computer, billboards, cars driving by, newspapers, radio. Our world is inundated with, well, messages of telling us that we need to get more. We need to get more, and then we can have true life. Those numbers, by the way, from digital marketing experts in an interview with Forbes. So a fairly reliable source. And some of us like to think, well, sure, but like, they can't really get me, right? I'm, I'm much smarter than this. There's billions of dollars to say we're not much smarter. There's teams of psychologists who have jobs that are only consist of convincing your head and your heart that you need more to get true life. That's their job, to manipulate your mind and your heart. And I know this is true because I've been part of sales and marketing. That's what I was trained to do. Some of you may not know this. I used to sell knives. 
Really fun fact. Yeah, yeah. Not what you think. I didn't have this trench coat and just like, hey. Didn't quite work that way. I used to sell Cutco. Some of you may be familiar with the brand of knives. They're actually, honestly, really good knives. And I'm not going to sell you on it this morning. I promise. I'm not. I still, I still use the knives. They're legit. But they're really, really expensive, really pricey. And so I was going around trying to sell these knives to friends and neighbors. And it took some time. I'd have to pitch them for 40, 45 minutes. I'd get their current knives out and compare them. And our knives would always dominate their knives. That was easy. But then I had to sell them on the final price. I had to figure out a way to convince them that this was a worthwhile investment. And so I was trained to do what in sales you call walking the customer down. You start with the most expensive set. I never sold one of the most expensive sets. It literally existed as a psychological tool. So I'd present them this huge, expansive set with knives that you don't need, to be honest. And they said, well, that's a little much, right? That's a little excessive and a little exorbitant. So I'd walk them down. I'd say, I totally get it. Let's look at the next set. And I'd keep walking them down and walking them down. And eventually, after 10 or 11 of those, they see a smaller set and they're like, this is a steal, right? If I had started with that set, they wouldn't have thought that. But now this set seems small in comparison to the biggest thing. It's the same reason that when you go to the movie theater, they offer a big bucket of popcorn to you. They don't offer the bucket of popcorn to sell more buckets. They offer it to sell more mediums because the medium seems more reasonable. That's literally what I was trained to do, was to convince everyone I talked to that I can just well, walk you down. And eventually, you're going to find something that says, well, this is a good deal. I need this. I need more of this in my life. And that assumption leaks into every part of our lives. It's not just about knives, believe it or not. It's not just about possessions and money. Greed exists for all sorts of things, which is why Jesus says, be on guard against all kinds of greed. We believe that if we get the right promotion or the right salary, then, then we'll have made it. Right? We believe that if we marry Mr. or Mrs. X, then, then we'll be secure and happy. We believe that the car or the home or the job or the next milestone in life will finally satisfy us. And every time we get there, it fails. It's like life is this long line of brick walls. And you think that on the other side of that wall, there's real life and happiness. You get there, and it's not there, but there's another brick wall. And you keep going and going and going. That's the principle, the problem that Jesus exposes. We've got a problem with greed. And so if that's true, and we all know it's true, and we all agree on it, why can't we fix it? Why can't we do better, right? We have these great moral examples across every faith and across every culture. Why can't we figure this out? Well, according to Jesus and according to the scripture, it's because we're sick. We have a condition. The condition is called sin. Greed is just a symptom of that bigger sickness. And I know that the word sin has been weaponized and abused to shame people and condemn people. That's not the goal of Jesus. He doesn't look to shame people. He looks to heal them. So when he talks about sin, I want to be very clear what he means. Sin is disordered love. Sin is disordered love. The story of the scripture says that we as humans were made to love certain things. We were made to love God, we were made to love people sacrificially, and we were made to, to love the earth that God has given us. We are to do all of that with uh, 
self-sacrifice, with giving ourselves away for the sake of those things. We're made to love, and what's happened is that we've gotten our loves out of order. We've decided to say that I'm going to love this thing in this way at this time, and it actually leads us to death and destruction rather than true life. And we notice this. If you really dig into it, think about the times that you're most dissatisfied. Oftentimes, it's because we're loving the wrong things in the wrong ways. We're prioritizing the wrong things at the wrong time. And no matter how hard we try, this still exists in us. No matter how many great moral teachings we get, we still can't escape this thing called greed. It's because of sin. So that's the problem that Jesus gives us. But he doesn't stop with a problem. He gives us a parable to help us understand how this problem works. And in the parable, he tells of a rich man who yielded abundance and abundance of crops in his life. And I want to say right off the bat, Jesus doesn't condemn abundance here. Notice that. He doesn't say that the abundance is necessarily bad. It's the posture towards that abundance that matters in the story. Jesus and the Bible are not opposed to things, friends. They're not opposed to well, all of the things that we have in our lives. In fact, the earliest commands of God to humans is to use those things well, to create new things, to cultivate things. Things are good. It's our posture towards those things that can become destructive. Are we using them for our benefit at the expense of someone else? Are we using them to obtain our own sense of self-esteem, our own sense of security, our own sense of power in the world, our control? So he tells us this parable as an example of how this rich man responds to his abundance. And notice, the rich man is entirely self-focused. Did you catch it? Thirteen times in two verses, he references himself. He only uses personal references to self when he gets the abundance. He thought to himself, what should I do for I have no place to store my crops? I will do this. I will pull down my barns. I will build larger ones. And I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. Which is a hilarious example, right? Ah, soul. Aren't you so happy with yourself? You done good, kid, right? He's congratulating himself 13 times in two verses. He's entirely unconcerned with the way that his abundance might be used to love God and love others. It doesn't even cross his mind because it doesn't matter to him. And here, for us in the 21st century, is perhaps what's most damning about this. Technically, according to the way that we understand economics in our day, he, he makes the right business move. So, for instance, we're taught in our day that controlling the supply of a particular good is the best thing you can do for a business. If you can control the supply, then you can control the market. It's advantageous to control the supply. That's what he does here. He gets an abundance of crops, and eventually a famine is going to come in that, in that land. And eventually his competitors will have to come to him, and he can charge whatever he wants. He does the thing that's most advantageous for his business here. Notice he also tears down his current barns, which is curious, right? Why tear down perfectly good barns? Why not just add more? Well, because that would take away land that he could use to continue to harvest crops. He is maximizing his profit. He's maximizing his own business here. And in American culture, we encourage people to do that. We encourage people to maximize what they can get based on their produce. Friends, sometimes, sometimes, the best business move is not the best kingdom move. 
Sometimes the thing that secures my economic advantage is actually the worst thing to do in loving God and loving others. But we live in a culture that models our behavior after the rich man, and that's because we live with a fundamental assumption. It's called scarcity. We live, and our economic market is built on scarce resources. That is, there's only so much to go around. And so our job is to get as much as we can to protect ourselves. And that inevitably will create a world of haves and have-nots. Because some are getting more and others are losing what those have gotten. We're all living as if there's not enough for everyone. Since we have a scarcity of goods, our instinct is to do whatever we can to get more. This is why, you might remember at the start of COVID, everyone rushed the grocery stores. Remember that? Toilet paper and food and water, everything they could get, they stored up. Now, question for you. Have you guys stopped drinking? You guys still eating? Are you still wiping your butts? You knew that was going. We have plenty of toilet paper. There's plenty of food. There's plenty of water. There's more than enough to go around. There's so much water that we bottle it and sell it for profit. Our market is based on the assumption that scarcity exists. But that's not the reality that God gives us. Jesus and the scriptures tell of a different reality. Instead of scarcity, they say we have an abundance. That God has given us more than enough, has given more than enough to all of the world. And so our instinct should never be to get more for ourselves, but instead to ensure that everybody has enough. That's our job as Christians. That's our job as humans. That's what it means to be really, truly human. The only reason that people don't have enough in the world is because people have either taken things from them or withheld things from them. Walter Brueggemann puts it this way in his book, An Other Kingdom. He says, there's enough food to feed the world. But if the food were simply fully distributed, the market for food as we know it would collapse. We prioritize the market, the economic system, because we believe that resources are scarce. That's not the picture of the scriptures, friends. God has given us abundance of resources. That's why St. Basil puts it this way, a man who lived thousands of years ago. He said, if you want storehouses, if you want bigger barns, you have them in the stomachs of the poor. If you want storehouses, you have them in the stomachs of the poor. Jesus makes it clear, friends, this is what we are made to do as Christians. And that means we've got to make a shift from scarcity to abundance. I've got a graphic here that I wanted to share with you that I think illustrates how this leaks into every part of our lives. So a scarcity mindset says there's not enough to go around. But an abundance mindset says there's plenty for everyone. A scarcity mindset says I need to prioritize my happiness first. An abundance mindset says I can find my happiness in yours. A scarcity mindset says I know all of the answers. An abundance mindset says I can learn from you. A scarcity mindset promotes the self. An abundance mindset focuses on others. A scarcity mindset micromanages and distrusts. An abundance mindset promotes freedom and trust. And a scarcity mindset says, play it safe and keep myself comfortable and secure. An abundance mindset says, risk for the right things in order to grow. This is the move Jesus is calling us to make, to move from scarcity to abundance. And that's actually why the church exists guys. When we give, we're not just giving to some production on a Sunday morning. When you drop money in that offering box, when you scan a QR code 
and you give to Midtown, you are giving so that we can ensure everyone is taken care of and so that we can continue to provide abundantly for anyone that's in need in our community and near our community. There's a reason we meet in Hope Women's Center because they're doing that work every day. There's a reason we gather in this room. We want to make sure as a community that the world is experiencing the, the abundance of God, not the scarcity of the world. There's plenty to go around. And yet, this rich man fails. That's why the parable ends the way that it does. God calls him a fool. says, your life will be demanded of you tonight. What he's really saying is, hey, you're going to die, man. And then a rhetorical question at the end, where's your stuff going to end up? It's going to end up in the hands of everyone else, right? He's saying that all your work at hoarding was for naught because it still ends up with someone else anyway. So why didn't you give it away to them in the first place? You had the opportunity to bring abundance and life to the world, and you chose to hoard instead. He's saying that the result's always the same. So we can start living in the kingdom now. We don't need to hoard for our own security. So that's what Jesus tells us with the parable. He's illustrating what greed does in us, and he's illustrating the scarcity that informs our greed so often. But we still have a problem. That sickness, that sin. We can't seem to solve greed. Him giving us this example doesn't solve it for us. We've all failed to be human in one way or another. We know that true humanity is to love God and love others with abundance, and we have failed to reach that. And so we need a human that can be truly human for us. And yet we know that every human who's tried has failed. So we need something beyond humanity as well. We need someone who is at once able to be the human we were made to be while also being stronger than the humans that we are. And that brings us to the third P, the paragon. Oh, I'm so excited to share this word with you guys. It's a fun word. It actually really just means a perfect example. That's what paragon means. And it was a nice alliteration. So there you go. Paragon is the perfect moral example, and the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus is the paragon. Jesus, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, is the one who can be truly human, but who can also overcome humanity because he's God. He's the one who can do both of the things that we are unable to do. And Jesus tells us that because of that, when we trust in him, when we place our hope and satisfaction in him and not the things of the world, we will get the true life we're made for. He has charted the way to being truly human, to restoring our humanity. That means that the only way we avoid being like the rich man is not by increased willpower. It's not by just bucking up and doing better. It's by trusting that we need help and that Jesus provides it. It's by believing that in Jesus, I can have real, lasting life, that I can lose the grip that every other thing has on me in the world because greed is a grip and it's strong. Instead of saying, I need more things in order to be happy, we need to say, I have hope in Jesus. He's given to me abundantly and I have true life in him, so I don't need to hold on to these other things. I don't need to hold on to these false givers of life. And when we do that, something remarkable starts to happen in us. Scripture calls this the spirit of God moving through us. Because we let go of these false visions of life, we actually become more generous. We actually become people who are more shaped like the original humanity we were made to be. Jesus starts to work in us. When we trust in him, 
we start to become more like Jesus, little by little by little. But it only comes when we acknowledge our need for him. The only way to get true life, friends, is to let go of the false life. You can't receive what God has for you if your hands are like this. It can't happen. We need to open our hands and receive the life of Jesus into our lives, allow his priorities to determine our priorities. Because when we do that, we get real humanity. We get real life. And greed loses its grip on us. In this parable, Jesus puts the problem of greed right in front of us. He gives us a story where the rich man is almost foolishly greedy. It's easy for us to laugh at until we realize we're the same sorts of people. And then, throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus exemplifies that he's the solution to that problem. It's not better willpower. It's not more moral excellence. It's by trusting in Jesus, putting your hope in him. And so now the ball's in our court. How are we going to respond? As we go out beyond these windows into the world, how are we going to respond? Are we going to be people who continue to perpetuate scarcity? who continue to think that there's only so much to go around and I just need to get what I can for me and mine? Or, or, will we trust that Jesus has come to give us true life and that there's an abundance for everyone? Jesus is quite clear. There's only one way to get true, lasting life. It's in him. So you're going to do this? Or you're going to do this? Let's pray.